Good morning. How are you this morning? Doing well? Good. So glad to see you all out worshiping with us this morning. I, uh, I know the rain uh, came in this morning, and I kind of was a little bit of afraid that people wouldn't show up because of it, but we have a pretty, pretty full house for the summer. So thank you for coming and worshiping with us. My name is Jason Averill. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And uh, right now we are in the midst of our summer sermon series on theology. This is theology proper. That is the study of God himself. And when we last were in this series two weeks ago, we heard from Pastor Wilson on the sovereignty of God. Today, kind of fitting because it's Pentecost, uh, Pentecost Sunday, uh, we are learning about the presence of God. And we're going to be learning about the presence of God from one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 139. So let's pray, and then we can jump in. Father, we thank you, Lord, for drawing us here this morning. We know that we all have our own reasons for coming. We all have our own reasons for being here. But the ultimate reason that we are here is because you have put it on our hearts to draw us here. And you did that so that we might raise you up in worship. Because you know that as we worship you, we become more alive. As we worship you, we come, become more like your precious son, Jesus. And it's a privilege, Lord, that you have given us today. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for showing us the Father. We thank you that you saw us and you said to the Father that you wanted us and you came for us. Holy Spirit, we ask, Lord, that as we turn to study your word, that you keep us from distractions, keep our minds on Jesus, illumine our hearts so that we see him and see him clearly. Amen. So, where is God? Where is God? That's one of the most frequently asked questions of any pastor. Where is God? And we hear it from, you know, three or four different sources. You know, little children, they'll say, where is God? And they'll be like, where is he? Because, of course, God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. And so we can't see God. And it's a natural question. Where is he? And so we say he's in heaven or Jesus lives in our hearts as he does. We also hear it uh, from older Christians as, as they go through life and they suffer through trials. And we hear it in the sense of, where is God? You know, I just, I just lost my job and I can't, I can't see how God is working here. One of my loved ones just died. And I can't see God. Where is he? And then older Christians will, will know this very well. There's also a sense in which, you know, we ask where is God just because of the ebbs and flows of Christian life where we feel God's presence very powerfully and then for some reason after a little while, he seems to be gone. 
And then again, we feel him powerfully. And then again, he seems to be gone. So where is God? That's the question that we're going to be turning to the text today with. Our sermon text is Psalm 139. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Thus far, the reading of God's word, all men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But not God's word, it stands forever. So let's turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So there are three things from this passage that we're going to look at as far as the presence of God. We're going to be looking at the extent of his presence. We're going to be looking at uh, the relationship between his presence and the other attributes that, that we've studied. And we're going to finally look at reactions, reactions to his presence. So, three things. The extent of his presence, the relationship between his presence and his other attributes, and our reactions to his presence. So what is the extent of God's presence? What do I mean by that? 
So the Bible speaks about God's presence in two ways, generally speaking. Anyway. They speak of manifestations of God's presence. This is when God shows up. You know, that's in air quotes. God shows up. It's when he becomes apparent. He reveals his presence in particular instances and in particular ways. And we see this all over the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. We see him showing up physically with Adam and Eve. Um, he walks in the garden with them. He shows up physically in the pillar of fire and smoke as he leads the Israelites through the desert. He shows up in the burning bush when he talks with Moses. And he shows up as the angel of the Lord whenever he talks to Joshua about the battle plans as they go into Canaan. Of course, most importantly, he shows up physically in the person of Jesus as he is incarnated in the New Testament. He also shows up through his power. This, this <clears throat> sorry, let me slow down. <laughs> These are uh, his works of power in the in the world. So whenever, you know, he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, that is his physical presence being manifested in that destruction, in that judgment, the parting of the Red Sea, the plagues on Egypt, all of those are demonstrations of his power. It's manifestation of who he is through his power. And he also manifests himself inwardly. He manifests himself within believers in the conviction of sin in the assurance of pardon for believers because of their faith in Christ and in the comfort that that brings to them but the manifestations aren't the only way that scripture speaks of God being present in fact while it does speak mostly of manifestations because it's telling God's works in history God says many many times that he isn't constrained in any way to anything physical okay there's no physical boundary around him so for instance Solomon in first Kings says this of God but will God indeed dwell on the earth Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Heaven, all the heavens, and the highest heaven, that is the heaven that we can't see, the heaven in eternity, cannot contain him. Isaiah says something similar in chapter 66, verse 1. He says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Jeremiah jumps on this bandwagon too, and he says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not, do I not fill heaven and earth, declare, declares the Lord? And so again and again, the Bible speaks about God as being so big, so massive, so immense, so present that he fills everything. He fills all of the heavens, the stars, the universe, all of the earth. He fills the highest heavens. All of eternity is full of his presence. 
And this is what theologians call his omnipresence. Okay, so we've, we've talked about uh, God's omnipotence. We've talked about his omniscience a little bit. You know, the omni is uh, the Latin word for all, and then whatever the word tacked on the end, you know, omnipotent, that's all-powerful. Omniscient, all-knowing. So omnipresence is all-presence. And so what is omnipresence? What do, we, what do we mean when we talk about that? So let's look at what David says in this passage, starting in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there, and if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So what's he saying there? He's saying that there's nowhere he could go, that if he wanted to run away, there's nowhere that he could go where he could be away from God's presence. And this is actually acted out pretty strikingly in the story of Jonah. If you remember Jonah, you know, he gets the call from God, and God says, hey, go to Nineveh, and he flees to Tarshish. God says, the people of Nineveh have been sinning before my very face. That's what the Hebrew words say. We say, they've been sinning in my presence. But it's before my very face. And Jonah thinks he can get away from God. And so he runs away. And he finds out very quickly that he can't. That even on the boat to Tarshish, God is with him even after he's cast into the sea and goes down to the depths and actually sees what he calls the roots of the mountains. That's the bottom of the sea that he's in. God is there, and he feels his presence. There's nowhere to flee. Theologians talk about omnipresence in this way as one of God's spatial attributes. It's, got, it's how God acts in creation, how he relates in creation. And there's a quote by Charles Hodge that I, I think gives a good picture of what his presence is. Hodge says, his omnipresence is the infinitude of his being, viewed in relation to his creatures. He is equally present with all his creatures at all times and in all places. He is not far from <clears throat> any one of us. The Lord is in this place, may be said with equal truth and confidence everywhere. Theologians are accustomed to distinguish three modes of presence in space. Bodies, that is, anything that has a physical form, are in space circumscriptively. They're bounded by space. Spirits are in space definitively. That is, they are not everywhere, but they're only somewhere. But God is in space repletively. He fills all space with all of his essence. 
There is no one part of space that's left out. In other words, Hodge says, the limitations of space have no reference to him. He is not absent from any portion of space, nor more present in any one portion than another. God is everywhere, and no part of creation is accepted from that. Karnak puts it this way, as all times are a moment to his eternity, so all places are a point to his essence. As he is larger than all space, he is vaster than all places. He's everywhere. Nothing is accepted from that. Theologians say not even hell is accepted from that. You know, we, we have this, this popular idea in Christianity that hell is separation from God, but that's not quite true. Hell is separation from God's goodness and love and its exposure only to his justice and wrath. And God is present and presides even over hell. He is present there too. Beaky says this, God is everywhere. That is, he is present in hell as he is in heaven. And... If you know what deism is, this is a complete refutation of what deism is. So what is deism? Deism is this idea that came about um, really in the 17 or 1800s, though it can be found before then, of God as this cosmic watchmaker. And it, deism says that God as the watchmaker has designed the universe to work in a particular way. He's set it all out, and he started the watch and wound it up and then he takes a step back, and he just watches it play out, that there's no real interaction. He can interact, but in general, he doesn't. But his omnipresence goes against that, because in his omnipresence, God is intimately involved with every detail of creation. He is not far removed. He is right there in the midst. So that's the extent of God's presence. But now, let's look at how it relates to some of his other attributes. So let's start with the attribute of being. So he is everywhere that his creation is. And he's so much so that Paul on Mars Hill is able to say this to the philosophers, to the Greek philosophers. This is Acts 17, uh, 27 and 28. Paul says, yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. God is so present that our very being is contained within God. We are not synonymous with God. We are distinct. But our being is sustained by his being. In his being we have ours. Paul says in Colossians of Jesus, he says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Colossians chapter 1. In Jesus, all things hold together. That is, as Jesus, the Son of God, has his being, so he holds all things together. The author of the book of Hebrews says something similar, but he expands on it. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God, speaking of Jesus, and the exact imprint of his nature, 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so the universe itself, everything in it, is upheld constantly by Jesus. And it's upheld, the author of Hebrews says, by the word of his power, which brings us around to his omnipotence. How does God's omnipotence relate to his omnipresence? It's not just that he is present in all of creation. It's that he's present and acts in all of creation. And as he acts, as he exercises his power in creation, the two attributes meet. He exercises his power wherever he is. And again, this is against that deistic idea, that idea of the cosmic watchmaker, because the cosmic watchmaker example says that God wound up the universe and then backed away. And what we really find out from Scripture is that all of the functionings of the universe, all of the functionings of that metaphorical watch are being held in being by God. And they all function by his power at all times. So everywhere he is present, that he is at work. Everywhere he is at work, he is using his power in his providential care of creation. And we see this here pretty poignantly in verse 13 through 16. David says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. God is present and active in forming David in the very womb. He's there with David, putting him together. And David says that it actually goes out a little bit further back. Says, you saw my unformed substance before anything ever happened. You saw who I was going to be and you wrote in your book all of my days. All of my days were formed for me to live, David says. And you did that. And you were present to every single one of those days, even in the womb. And so, even when David was in the womb, the Lord had already formed his entire life and pictured it as, as written. And this kind of brings, it, brings us around to his omniscience. It's the last of what theologians call his, his spatial attributes, God's spatial attributes. So how does his omnipresence interplay with his omniscience? A lot of times I, I think we think about omniscience kind of like this. God just knows everything. And he has an infinite reasoning capacity, and he can work out everything in the world. The confession of faith that we adopt, the Westminster Confession, says it this way, that he knows all contingencies. 
He knows everything that's going to happen and can reason out everything that would happen if something else changed. So if I tripped and fell off the stage and broke my head right now, God, would, God knows exactly how that would change everything. Now, the confession goes on to say that he doesn't base any of his designs on that contingency because he writes history. He doesn't just alter it. But that's how we think of omniscience. And that is true. That is part of, part of what it means that God is omniscient. But where it connects with omnip <clears throat> omnipresence is a bit different. So if God is repletively all in his entire being in every moment of time, in every, every piece of space, throughout the entirety of the universe, then he is boots on ground experiencing everything. He knows firsthand everything that's happening. And so, his, <clears throat> his omniscience, while he does have that reasoning omniscience, that's not principally why he knows what happens. Principally why he knows what will happen in the future is because he has designed it that way. Secondarily, it's because he is there as it's happening. It's powerfully kind of brought home in the first six verses of this, uh, this psalm. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. That doesn't mean that God is far away discerning his thoughts. That means that God is seeing his thoughts before they are actually formed. It's a temporal, temporal distance that God knows what David will think before he does. You search out my paths and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. The presence of God here and the knowledge that he has of David is an intimate knowledge. It's, actually, it's similar in many ways to, to the knowledge that people who have been married for a long, long time have of each other. You know, my wife and I have only been married for 12 years, going on 13. But even now, I know how she's going to react. I know how she's going to react when somebody says something to her. I know how she's going to react to most any piece of news. I can almost finish her sentences. And it's that intimacy between us that allows that. We know each other really, really well. Because we've been together for a really long time. But God in his relationship with David, formed all of David's life before the foundation of the world, wrote it in his book, was there with David in the womb, 
putting him together and has been with him throughout every step of his life. He knows David inside and out. Knows him intimately. So, we've talked about the extent of God's presence and how it relates to some of his other attributes. But what does that mean for us? How, how is it that we react to knowing about God's omnipresence? Knowing about his presence among us. So we'll talk about four reactions people typically have. These aren't all the reactions at all. And they're not discrete categories. You can, you know, react two or even three, four, five, eight ways. Who knows? All at the same time. But they're good categories to think of. And so the first reaction that we see is fear. People hear about God's presence, watching them at all times, and it can be terrifying. It really can be. I have a joke that I tell sometimes that nobody ever gets because nobody's seen this movie, but there's a movie called Enemy of the State, and it stars Will Smith, and I say it's the most terrifying horror movie ever. If you've seen the movie, you'll know it's not a horror movie. It's a suspense movie, but it's a suspense movie about the U.S. government having basically omnipresence and able to see everything that Will Smith does at every point in time. And of course, they are malevolent toward him. And so it's terrifying. Again, nobody gets that joke. All right. And so, whenever we think about God's presence and we think about our fear reaction, um, you know, it's kind of a natural reaction. And it, it does afflict unbelievers more than believers, but believers can still react this way. I remember the first time that God very powerfully and immediately answered one of my prayers. A friend of mine, his mother was dying. She had been dying for can- from cancer for a long time. And she was in constant pain. And he sent out a text asking for prayer. And though I was going to pray for her healing, I actually ended up praying that the Lord would take her. And immediately, within two minutes after finishing that prayer, I got a text from my friend saying that his mother had died. And that was startling. When you come face to face with the reality that God is actually listening. The second second way we respond is shame. So, we realize that we've sinned shame. We see this in Adam and Eve. They sin in the garden, and for fear of him, they make clothes, and out of their own shame uh, that they feel in his presence, they try to cover themselves up. We see this in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah comes into the throne room of God, and what does he say? He says, woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips who dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
I'm undone. He feels that shame. And when we start really processing what it means that God is omnipresent, that means that everything that you've done in your life has been done in the full face of God. That every time that you have sinned, every time that I have sinned, it has been in front of the face of God. He has seen every single one. It's David's reaction in Psalm 51 before he confesses his sin. And it causes him to waste away. The third we actually see here in this passage, it's, it's comfort. It's David's reaction. God's continual presence for him here is a source of great, great comfort. Again, in, in verse 18, he says, I awake and I am still with you. That's a wonderful thing for him. Even though he says, where shall I go from your spirit? No commentator actually thinks he was trying to run away from God. He was marveling at the fact that there was no possible way that he could. And knowing that God sees him brings him great, great comfort because he knows that God is with him and has been with him for all of his life. And in fact, at the very end, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. He's asking God there. He's assuming that God is still staying with him. And he's saying, God, search me out. If there's anything wrong in me, weed it out so that I'm more like you because I want to be with you for everlasting. The fourth, the fourth way we see we react is worship. We're moved to worship whenever we're confronted by any of God's absolute excellencies. We can react with fear. We can react with shame. It can comfort us, but ultimately, it drives us to worship Him. We see this in verse 6 where he says such knowledge is too wonderful for me it is high and I cannot attain it it's a worshipful statement it's extolling who God is and how <clears throat> how very much beyond any human he is and how he's deserving of worship because of it and like I said, people can feel some of these. They can feel all of these. They're not discrete categories. We actually see in Isaiah, in that call, we see like all of them. He goes into the throne room of God and his first reaction is fear and then it's shame. And then when his sin is cleansed and he's purified, he's comforted. And then he worships God. We see this, the disciples' reaction to Jesus as he, as he calms the storm. When they're confronted with the power and majesty 
of the presence of God in their midst, and they are terrified. And yet, they turn to worship. They know that he is the Son of God. So, okay, Jason, at the beginning, we asked, where is God? And you pretty much just said that he's everywhere, that there's no, no part of creation that doesn't have him. So what about all those times where he seems hidden to us? Why is that? Why does he seem hidden to us? Where is he? And yeah, those times are hard. Those times are really hard. And it can be for many, many different reasons. You know, the first thing that I look at in my own life whenever I, I find that God seems to be far away, I look at how I'm doing with my spiritual disciplines. Am I reading my Bible every day? Or if I'm reading it every day, am I actually doing it devotionally? Or am I just going through the motions, just reading the words to mark off the checkbox so that it's done? How's my prayer life? Is it lively and active? Or do I pray the same prayer again and again and again? Kind of treating God like he's a vending machine. Now, why do I look at spiritual disciplines first? It's because we have many promises in the Bible, such as James chapter 4, verse 8, where God says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. We have that promise. We have that promise many times throughout Scripture. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And so the first thing that I check if God seems far away is, am I actually doing the work to draw near to him? Am I actually doing those spiritual disciplines so that I can know him more and better. The second thing I look for is unconfessed sin, broken relationships. And that's because the Lord is also equally emphatic throughout Scripture that he is close to the lowly and contrite of heart, and yet he is far away from the proud. So those are two things that I look for, but those aren't the only reasons why God might seem distant. In fact, most of the time, the reasons are only known to God. We've been pursuing our spiritual disciplines. We've been <clears throat> attending worship regularly. We've been fellowshipping with our, our fellow believers. We've been in the word. We've been praying. We've had people pray for us. And yet God still seems distant. And... We don't know why. The reason is only known for, to God. Which, you know, when you're going through it, that pregnant question that's still there haunts you. And while I can't necessarily answer why it happens all the time, I can answer one reason why it does not. It does not happen because God doesn't love you. If you are a Christian, if you have faith in our Savior Jesus, 
It cannot be that you don't feel his presence because God doesn't love you. And we have that as a sure confidence because of the work of Jesus. Because Jesus, the very person of God, became incarnate, dwelt among us, and did that all so that he could live the perfect life that all of us need to live. And he did that so that he could take from us all of our sin, all of the cause of our shame upon himself on the cross and die the death that it deserves. He did that for every Christian in this room. And so I can know for certain, for sure, that God, if he seems distant to you, does not, he's not keeping his distance because he doesn't love you. No. Cannot be that. Jesus died so that he could give us the Holy Spirit. That's what we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday so that the <clears throat> Pentecost Sunday is the Sunday where God pours out his spirit upon all of humanity, upon all believers, and indwells all believers and unites them inseparably with himself. This is what he prayed for in, in the garden. In John chapter 17, he prays his high priestly prayer, and he says to God, God, I pray that they may be one as we are one, so that they will be in me as you are in me, and I am in you, and I am in them. All of that, that's what Jesus prayed for that you would be united together with him and have his presence in you, in the spirit, for the rest of eternity. And just like the call to worship that we had today, what we're going towards is a physical, resurrected presence with Jesus for all time. For all time. And so those times that God seems distant, it will not always be so. It will not always be so. We know that for sure. And we know that whatever we feel, we don't base, our, we don't base reality on our feelings. That's a bad thing to do because the reality is that God lives in you, in your breast. Jesus has tied himself to you, Holy Spirit. You are united, you are one, and we will dwell with him forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, this great truth that you are with us is too wonderful many times to even comprehend. We look at ourselves and we see our sinfulness, we see our pride and our rebellion, and we feel the worthlessness that we are, and yet you look at us, you look at us as beloved children. You look at us as a people to be redeemed for all eternity for yourself so that we may be in your presence and experience you forever. Thank you, Lord. 
Keep us humble. Keep us looking toward Jesus. Give us great confidence in his love, in his work, 